Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Welcome to Law in the Family, where we discuss issues and topics related to the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. I'm Aaron Weems, a family law attorney in Fox Rothschild's Blue Bell Montgomery County office. Today, my guest is clinical psychologist Christina Carson Secco. Christina is the co founder of the Center for Neuropsychology and Counseling, located in Chalfont, Bucks County. She has over 25 years of experience working with individuals, couples, and families. She's also a sought after speaker, presenter, and wellness consultant working with national and international corporations. Christina is here today to discuss the impact of difficult personalities on divorce cases and how attorneys can help manage cases involving such individuals and tips that we can use to try to help our clients get through this process where the other side might be challenging. So, Christina, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for inviting me. So I use the phrase difficult personalities, and that was something that we talked about offline. And I did it purposely because in those discussions, I know that you've expressed some concerns about the propensity for people to just throw around psychological terms, you know, conditions and things of that nature without really understanding what the impact is. So can you talk a little bit about how you as a psychologist, what your perspective is on how that common usage has seeped into our vernacular? Yeah, definitely. You know, I'll try to stay off my soapbox and actually talk about it. But I want to say it's it really took off, you know, when we all got sequestered home and went on our computers and our phones a lot more. And, you know, I jokingly call it TikTok psychology. And I have mixed feelings about it. I think that there was a lot of talk about it. There were influencers on social media. Teenagers were, uh, you know, coming in and using lingo. I'm like, where'd you learn that? You know, what do you got a copy of the DSM at home? But I think influencers who themselves, you know, had diagnoses were going on online and talking about it. And I have mixed feelings. So on the one hand, I feel like it destigmatizes, right? You know, if you if there were people online talking about mental health issues, take some of the stigma out. It becomes more of a, an everyday vernacular. On the other hand, I have a problem because there's misinformation. Not everybody is accurately portraying things and words are getting thrown around like, you know, narcissism or borderline, you know, oh, they're so borderline. They're such a narcissist. They're, you know, wow, they're so bipolar. Wow, that person's really OCD without actually having a diagnosis. And that concerns me. So there's a little bit of this that you mentioned influencers that maybe themselves have a diagnosis. Is that is that just that feedback loop of when I put something out there? I have a community that comes back at me that either, you know, that sort of verifies my thinking. But more than that, it, it's a little bit of if I'm this way, then I'm now seeing the entire world from that perspective. Like when you're a carpenter, the entire world is a nail type of theory. Is there a little bit of that as well, where people are, for whatever reason, taking the issues that they have and just kind of projecting them out onto the, the world around them? I can't say I've followed all of these people, but from what I'm hearing secondhand, there is a certain amount of, as the teenagers will say, you make it your whole personality. You know, everything comes under that umbrella. You know, if someone says, you know, they'll have it as their tagline, you know, the Aaron Weems and underneath it'll, it'll be a list of diagnoses, whether or not 
someone actually gave them their diagnosis or not too. And yes, everything gets filtered through their, that lens. It becomes all about that diagnosis. And it, you know, it gets attention, it gets followers. I will say, you know, on side benefits, sometimes people come in and they're like, I saw this person, you know, she made a TikTok and it really hit home and it made me wonder, is this what I've been dealing with? And I just didn't know. And that's been helpful to at least start a conversation, whether it was accurate or not. So there's some pluses and some minuses, but I think when everything gets filtered through this very, sometimes inaccurate, but even if it isn't an accurate diagnosis. When everything gets filtered through that diagnosis, it's really limiting. It's putting yourself or it's putting another person in a very small box. You know, I can have two clients who are both, for example, diagnosed with bipolar depression. They could look very, very different. They could be very, very different people. But yes, that's one thing that they share. So it's, you know, anytime you put someone in a box, you know, if I say, oh, well, he's a lawyer, you know what I mean? You know, that's assuming all lawyers are exactly alike or she's a psychologist. Wow. Well, you know, we all know what that means. It's limiting. And, And when you say limiting, that's I think that's really interesting, because if you are pointing the finger at somebody saying they're a narcissist. Mm-hmm. That suggests a certain pathology and certain obstacles that they have, which if that were the case, then in a way that sort of shrinks your menu of how you can deal with them, right? Right. And it limits how they can respond to you. You know, it limits your expectations, right? If you see somebody as a very two-dimensional figure, and I was thinking about our discussion and, uh, you know, I may be dating myself, but it made me think about the Breakfast Club, you know, good old John Hughes. And, you know, we have the athlete, we have the dweeb. We have the prep, we have the stoner. And then the lesson we were all supposed to learn is that they were actually three-dimensional people at the end. We have the narcissist, we have the borderline, we have the bipolar. It makes you see them in a very rigid way, in a way where you don't expect much. Well, I only expect them to react that way because they're a narcissist. And it doesn't give any latitude for change. And I think it excuses you on one end of like, well, I don't have to work in a different way because they're just always going to respond this way. I don't have to change my game at all because they're just going to respond in this very black and white way. Sometimes they might, but you're not really giving yourself a chance to have a different interaction if you expect only that response. Sounds like there could also be the risk that someone can say, yeah, so you're calling me this in basically a pejorative way. You're trying to insult me in some way by saying that I have this condition. Well, then you now have to live with it. Like you have to live with the fact that I won't do X, Y, and Z because you've labeled me this way. And that's just something that I'm not able to do. I have yet to see a case where someone has leaned into the insult that they have been uh, essentially thrown at them. But you can certainly see that someone that if someone really follows that line of thinking that you've had, they say, okay, yeah, you want to label me this way, then you're going to have to deal with the difficulties that come along with that. Like I'm not going to respond the way that you want me to. And you've now put that person in the position of having to adjust. And I, it kind of seems like it's the unintended consequences of really what just comes down to using those phrases pejoratively against somebody. And I get it. I mean, you get frustrated and who knows, maybe somebody does come to you with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. One, I have a hard time with using psychological terms in layman's fashions. These are, these are clinical diagnoses that you know, people with a degree should be getting to know a client and coming up with a diagnosis. But let's say someone actually does have the diagnosis. You're not just throwing it at them because you're frustrated or because you see certain traits. Using that as your excuse <laughs> to treat them a certain way or to have limited expectations really does a disservice to both sides. And I think that away from the soapbox of you know using psychological terms in a in a you know non-clinical setting, 
it limits your expectations. It limits the way you engage them. You know, it's we we were talking about using even the word, you know, they're resistant or they're difficult. Yes, we're we're frustrated and owning our frustration or owning our our difficulty with that client um, is important. But if we stop there, well, they're just difficult. You know, I've seen it in our in, you know, in training situations where a trainee will be like, well, that patient's just resistant. Or maybe we need to change our tactics. You know, I will validate for my trainee that yes, that is extremely frustrating. You feel like you keep trying and you keep not getting the results you want. But once we validated, once we've processed, okay, would it not be appropriate then to try a different tactic or to maybe look at the root cause of why someone is behaving that way and maybe come at it from that angle or at least have compassion for what's going on underneath? Why are they challenged with this particular task? You might feel you can move forward once you figure out the whys. So along those lines, you're trying to determine the, the, the why. Could you give us a little bit of insight about what might be helpful for lawyers in dealing with, again, we're using the phrase kind of difficult personalities, but let's say that there might be some diagnosis on the other side. And I know it's I know it's impossible to sort of respond to every single conceivable hypothetical, but you know, are there any tips that you can offer for attorneys when they're when they're trying to manage someone through the divorce process that might have a you know a, a personality disorder or something along those lines? Is there are there any things that we should keep in mind? about how we approach them or how we even present information to them? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the the type of person you're dealing with. You know, someone's not responding in a timely manner. Someone responds to some things that, you know, doesn't get their paperwork or, you know, is very disorganized. You could say that they're, you know, uncooperative. They're disrespectful. Like you could have all kinds of feelings. So for one, I think you need to look at, you know, how am I feeling about this person? Kind of get out of your head and into your heart, because that sometimes can be a speed bump or a roadblock with someone. You know, I'm feeling disrespected because I'm putting all this energy in and they're not getting me the simplest thing. This is all I need, one piece of paper. They're not responding for two weeks to my email. They're not letting me do my job or they're not respecting my uh, expertise here. Acknowledge your own feelings. And then other than maybe difficult or resistant, what else might be going on? Maybe they're overwhelmed. Maybe they're disorganized. Maybe there's some executive functioning kind of stuff. You know, we we look at things like something like ADHD, you know, keeping things organized. And then especially if you've got a lot of emotion, you know, as in a divorce, that may test your coping skills with your executive functioning disorder. You know, if someone is having trouble managing their emotions, and this is their first ever divorce, but it may be your 300th, they may be more dysregulated. They may not be sleeping well. They may not be eating well. They may be caught up in their thoughts and forgetting their medication. Um, There may be a lot of different things going on. So just checking in on, you know, hey, before we move on, how are you doing? And it may be guiding them to some supports so that they could get the supports outside of your office so they come and they present better in your office. You said a couple of things that made me think of the idea of of control. You know, disorganized that um, you know, sort of having difficulty regulating things, and it feels like so often that our cases are very much about are, are basically just excuses for trying to exert control over one person by the other. And even for to that extent, even the attorneys trying to have control over the situation, so much of it feels like it's about who has control, who lost control, who's trying to regain control, and the substitute for those things are like you know, whether or not we're going to talk about the dog and the divorce. They kind of present as sometimes inane issues, but also very serious issues. Like he doesn't get the kids homework done. 
you know, we are, you know, legal custody issues that come up in custody cases in particular, that the issues with the children become how I'm going to put my stamp on the situation. So when you have an issue that's more about control than it is necessarily the underlying issue, how do you suggest that we manage that with, with the individual? I mean, how, how do you suggest that we try to confront it being a control issue rather than really being a substantive issue? Yeah, I learned a long time ago. I have control over very few people. <laughs> you know, I hope I have influence over people, but I don't have control over anybody but myself. So that's a hard one to face, especially when you've been tasked with something and you want to do well. Get it, you know, moving that rock up the hill, so to speak, is a tough one to accept that, you know, the rock's got to want to move. So I think accepting what you do have control over and what you don't, and that goes for attorney and client, and then seeing where you have control. What even minute things do you have the ability to influence? And and I will say this, that if you think about people in your life that you've listened to and you've taken the advice of and you've worked well with as somebody who has told you what to do, it's usually someone that you have some sort of relationship with, somebody you respect somebody who you feel has wisdom to share and um, who you feel cares about you. When you feel someone cares about you and has some authority in terms of having wisdom, you're more likely to do what they say. So making sure you're paying attention to that relationship, which might be harder with the more difficult folks, right? So that that's where you look at, you know, what feelings is it bringing up and how can I foster a positive relationship where I can have influence because I got to accept I have no control. That's a great, it's a great point because I think everyone that, that is listening to this and anyone that's ever practiced law understands that it's a very much a relationship oriented practice, particularly family law, probably more so family law than almost any, you know, anything besides perhaps criminal defense. But with family law in particular, where the issues that we're dealing with, yeah, that's, you know, we all have those difficult clients. Again, we use the word difficult, difficult to us. And, and whether that's the personalities don't mesh. What have you? You know, we we bring as much of our own baggage into these cases as people as 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 our clients in a lot of times. Because we have seen them and we can, I think, fall into the habit of saying, Well, this this fact pattern is similar to the times I've seen a dozen times over, but it is unique to that person. So I think it's a point well taken that we can really only control ourselves, how we react to things. And to that end, that kind of is a good segue into what I've come to learn is your favorite phrase. Which is triggered, <laughs> and and this and this is we and and we came into this discussion kind of in the context of you know the propensity of using these psychological terms a little too freely, and what I what I always thought was that triggered was almost kind of like a just like a slang word, but I've come to learn from talking with you that there really is a little bit more substance behind it that it really does denote a response that isn't just I'm mad it is you know trauma based it is like it's it is rooted in much more than just I managed to tick you off. So why don't you talk a little bit about what that actually means, because I think it's important for us to be cognizant of it when we're either doing it to people inadvertently, but also a little bit of the fallout that can come that can that can be related to people that are truly from almost like a clinical sense triggered by an event or an emotion. Yeah, the pop psychology world, and, and this has happened, you know, for decades and decades and decades, things that that are more medical or more uh, clinical will work their way into you know, everyday language. So there's been a lot more awareness around being trauma-informed in our work. You see schools are looking at trauma-informed education and paying attention to the importance of somebody's trauma history. And and the word triggered comes out of that is, you know, when something from a, a trauma that you've experienced happens and it causes you to have a very strong reaction to that. So 
yeah, I have a hard time with with people kind of throwing this word around. It's the same, you know, it's the same way like somebody saying they're having a panic attack. Sometimes people are having a panic attack and that's a very, you know, clinical kind of set of criteria versus I'm having a lot of anxiety. Feeling triggered though, you know, if you you kind of one off that word, well, <laughs> he was triggered. It kind of takes away the importance of being in that moment of like, what happened, right? It, it's kind of flippant almost. What happened in that? I did something that caused an emotional reaction to this person. I made them fearful. I made them angry. I made them scared or sad. Paying attention to what actually happened is a little less likely when you just kind of one off. Oh, he was triggered. So it's more that cautionary tale. It's not that you can't use that word. I mean, I would prefer it, you know, stays clinical, but it's more paying attention to, you know, what happened in that interaction. And, you know, do I want to avoid that happening again? You know, what happened between us was partially my doing and I caused a strong emotional reaction to someone. And do I want to, you know, look at what those factors were and avoid doing it again? You know, it's interesting. We, we kind of talked about this being what are the things that attorneys can do to help manage these, you know, these difficult cases. But it feels like the takeaway is really about being self-reflective and looking at these these individuals and trying to take an objective look as to how they're reacting to things and what it is that we can do to identify our role in it to try to make it a smoother, either a smoother process, help that or decision making, whatever it might be. But yeah, it always came at it as like, okay, what are the what's in our toolbox to be able to apply to the guy that we dime store diagnosed as narcissism, the lady who we think is borderline personality. In reality, it's it really is less to do with them and more about us thinking about our own, looking at it from from their perspective, trying to put ourselves in their shoes and try to understand how it is that they're taking in this information that we're presenting to them or that we're you know, dealing with them on cross examination, whatever it might be. It really does feel like it's the work has to be done, you know, from our standpoint more so than being reactive to the individual. I mean, we're human, Aaron. We're going to react. I react. I mean, I try not to show it on my face all the time when I react, but I react. But doesn't that put the power back in your court? You know, <laughs> use the word court with an attorney. Doesn't it give you the power back? Because we can't control who walks through the door, who's our client. We can't control what they do when they leave our office. And yes, they're not two-dimensional people, right? I mean, one person with one diagnosis or maybe not having an official diagnosis is very different. But we want to look at, you know, what are our resources with that client? What are their strengths and their weaknesses? And what do I have control over? What, you know, where can I have influence? How can I understand what's going on? How can I validate what's going on or hear that person in a different way to move this forward? And so, yeah, it's not so much, you know, that we're not, all doing our part, but it's what do we have control over? Because yes, I would love it if we could all control all of these people. It would make our job so much easier, but we can't. And yeah, that's a that's a that's a great point because I think it's you know as I think about more and more, certainly I'm the boss of me. I get to decide how I'm reacting to situations. When people say you made me feel that way, it's actually more like I felt that way. Mm-hmm. You know, the, whatever that person did, you know. My interpretation of it, the what I decided, you know, how I ended up reacting to it was ultimately my decision. And I think just acknowledging that, you know, that uh, people will make you mad and all those things. If you can acknowledge that, then you seems like you have a step towards trying to manage it and trying to diffuse it and trying to redirect it into a more productive place. Absolutely. I think, too, seeing people as three-dimensional humans gives you a chance to validate what's going on with them. You know, I always remind myself, I've been through probably hundreds of divorces over the years with my clients. 
but most of the time it's their first one. And so, you know, their reactions may be coming from a lot of places, you know, their experience as a child going through a divorce, their fears, you know, something their friends said to them, I don't know what's going on. But if I can see them as a three-dimensional human and validate what they've got going on before I try to do my job, before I try to push them forward, they're probably going to move forward a lot easier, right? Right. You just reminded me of, you know, early on in my career when I, you know, started to be able to do a little bit of family law. One of the people that I worked with very much referred to the seven stages of grief. Like you need to kind of consider that these people are going through a grief stage. And, you know, and I've, and I've, in a way, I've kind of applied that to a lot of cases because you have situations where one party is clearly further along in the process emotionally than the other. And one party may want to still reconcile or just be in a different place. It's still sad about the breakup, whatever it might be, whereas the other person is, has moved far along, which usually seems to be an indication that they were going through that process, even when it may have still been an intact marriage. But using that as a, as like an understanding and a gauge to know that there's a progression to things and we should be cognizant of it and what these folks are going through. I think it's um, a good reminder to have. All right, a couple more things with you. You know, I thought if there's anything that you could try to kind of impart upon the audience about how we could at least try to help ourselves manage the managing of people who are presenting themselves as being difficult in these types of cases. Is there anything that we can try to remind ourselves of or keep in mind rules that we can follow that to just try to help make it a little bit easier for us to manage? Yeah, I I think what we talked about before, which is, you know, accepting what you cannot control. I think a lot of us beat our heads against the wall trying to make something the way we wish it was, whether that's a person, a situation, you know, something that's frustrating us. So, you know, accepting that it doesn't mean you have to like it doesn't mean that it doesn't tick you off, but accepting it and, you know, getting to a place where you can shift your focus to things that are within your control. And some of those things that are really, really important. And I think, you know, in all of our our caregiving fields, because I see yours as a caregiving field as well. If I was a surgeon, I'd have a scalpel. If I was a carpenter, I'd have a hammer. What do we got? Us. So if we are the tool by which this work happens, we have to make sure that we are taking care of our instruments. So, you know, self-care is another word that's been thrown around a lot the past few, and maybe I guess it's two words, the past couple of years. But If we are not trying to live a balanced life, if we are not stepping away from our work and having some boundaries around our work, if we are not doing the things that fill our bucket back up before we walk back to our desk and meet with another client, we're bringing less of ourselves to the job or we're not bringing the best self. And then someone who's challenging walks through the door and we're working on about an eighth of a gas tank that day. It's not going to go well or you're just going to walk out feeling awful. So, you know, it shouldn't just be talk. You know, what are the things that you enjoy doing that are not work? Make sure you're doing them. Who are the people that you enjoy being around? Make sure you go you go and you're around them and, you know, maybe less so around people that drain you. Who's your support system that really does fill up your bucket? You know, taking care of your mental and physical health is going to help you do a better job with your work, but it's also going to avoid burnout. You know, one of the things we learned during the pandemic, Aaron, about burnout is that it's not just stepping away from work. It's what you do with that time. It's making sure that you're doing things that help you feel like you're living this rich, full life outside of your job. So it's not just taking the days off. It's what you do with the days off. So, you know, that would be my advice. It's not very specific to the client, but it is something that is within your control and will help you face those clients in a different way. I'll just add, maybe just be careful who you give your cell phone to. (laughs) 
or, or put put some boundaries around around that uh, after hour contact, which is not always easy in our field. But I think that's great advice. I think the emphasis that has kind of grown within the legal community about you know, self care or just you know the work life balance, which I think, at least in my opinion, is kind of a sham. It's it's you know it's, I think so much in life is either all or nothing. You're you know you're all in on work or you're all in at home, and maybe that's the way it ought to be too. You know, it's, there is it's, no such thing, Aaron. There is no such thing. Right. You, know, uh, you can't, you cannot be a hundred percent in two places. I'm not a mathematician, but that does not work. So if you're trying to be all in here and all in there, you can't do both. So having those boundaries where you can give a hundred percent at work and then shut it down. The idea of giving a client your cell phone to send chills down my spine, but I'm guessing you guys do that. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, it happens, you know, and I, but I think it's, uh, I think also the type of work that we do, there's certainly an expectation of being accessible. And I think that is a challenge for a lot of people of putting that down. And because I think there's a, you know, we talked about it being the first, that person's first divorce. I mean, everything is, an, is acute to them in that moment. Like it's, you know, that this dispute, this issue has a level of urgency that we have just, we've learned over the years that it can probably wait until tomorrow or it can wait until Monday or, you know, 48 hours later, they're not going to find it to be that important. But in the moment, it's very tough. And I think the boundaries are something that I think everyone has to kind of develop their comfort level with as to what works for them. I know there are some attorneys that are on call 24-7 all the time, but that's also what makes them go and it works for them. But, you know, in other people, you know, five o'clock hits, you're not going to hear from them until tomorrow. And there are a lot of days I fall into that camp, you know, I, I, and I know it, you know, it's, uh, you know, because that's when the family kicks in and that's when, you know, the other part of your life kicks in. But, you know, it's good to be, it's good to think about it. And I think, you know, among attorneys, it's also good to talk about it because I think it also helps that when we deal with each other, we, we know a little bit about what to expect from each other. Yeah, yeah, I I absolutely hear you with the expectations. I will offer some food for thought. I not every psychologist does this. I do give clients my work email. I have a separate personal email for my work email, so that allows me to say I'm not putting notifications on for this one or I'm not going to check this one until, you know, 7 a.m. I'm, you know, not checking it after 7 p.m. That expectation, you just said it. When someone thinks they're in crisis, they're having an emergency. How often is it really something their attorney needs to deal with in that moment? And when you do respond, are you confirming in some way that this was that urgent? You know, and and the sustainability of that, you know, being a crisis worker, basically, in your off hours. I would dare say if it is a crisis, you need to refer to somebody like me, right? right. If it's a legal situation, you know, is there a way for them to access you in a manner that you could have some more boundaries around? Great point. And on that note, thank you for joining me today. We have had Christina Carson Sacco, who is a clinical psychologist and frankly, one of the an excellent speaker. If you have an opportunity, she does do other speaking engagements. We will put on the show notes places where you might be able to find her. Certainly her website for the Center for Neuropsychology and Counseling. That's in Chalfont, Bucks County. Thank you again, Christina. This has really been interesting. And I think I think I certainly have learned a lot from you and appreciate your insight into these issues. Enjoy the discussion. Thanks, Aaron. You got it. Thank you again to Christina Carson Sacco for joining us today. And thank you for listening to the Pennsylvania Bar Association's Law and the Family. I'm Aaron Weems. If you have something to share, a topic you want to hear about, or you just want to keep the conversation going, please contact me by email at aweems at foxrothschild.com or find me on Twitter at Aaron Weems, A-T-T-Y. Thanks again. And we'll be back again soon with more issues and topics related to the Pennsylvania Family Law Attorney. 
Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash law in the family. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.